can stand together, brothers and sisters, for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 41 of chapter 2 of the book of Acts. We're continuing forward, uh, looking at God's Word in Acts, and we'll be uh, first of three sermons looking at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Please listen carefully. This is God's holy and infallible word. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, They are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, 
nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we were all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know, assuredly, that God had, has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call and with many other words he testified and exhorted them saying be saved from this perverse generation then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. <clears throat> so as you can see there in your sermon outline, there's going to be three parts to Peter's sermon. Today will be part one, <clears throat> where we focus on uh, Peter and his, his quote from Joel 2. We look at that carefully together. Peter kind <clears> of <throat> setting the stage for, <clears throat> if you will, a timeline of where they are and what is coming. And then, <clears throat> after setting the stage and drawing his hearers into the curiosity of the moment, he tells them <clears throat> how they'll be saved. He tells them about Christ, his life, his death, as you've heard in the reading. His resurrection, His ascension, His enthronement. And He does this by claiming it to be true as an apostle with the authority, but also by quoting Old Testament scriptures that foretold this. Peter there in that same section preaches that Pentecost is the continuing work of Christ. He looks at Christ's life, death, resurrection, ascension, enthronement, and now He's outpouring Christ is still working. <clears throat> and then he ends that section by telling them that Jesus Christ, Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And then finally, part three, the people are cut to the heart. 
and they repent and they are baptized and about 3,000 souls are added to the kingdom. So there's three major sections to Peter's sermon and we'll look at them together in three sermons. Today when we go through verses 14 through 21, we'll look at the setting, what's going on at this point in time as Peter is engaged with the crowds that are present there on Pentecost Day. We'll see in verse 16 that Joel had predicted this Pentecost Day in Joel chapter 2. And we'll look at the idea that Peter mentions in the last days. We'll look at New Testament references to that. We'll see what it means. <clears throat> and then we'll see what happens at Pentecost AD 30. God pours out His Spirit on all flesh. One of the major predictions of Joel chapter 2. And then we'll look at uh, what really is AD 30 through AD 70. God shows heavenly wonders and earthly signs. The second major portion of Joel chapter 2. And then we'll talk a little bit about the great and awesome day of the Lord, which is that destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem and then ultimately the destruction of apostate Israel. But there's hope, as always. And Peter brings them to this and tells them, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. A direct quote from Joel. And then as usual, some questions to know and to love and to obey God. So verses 14 and 15 give us the setting of Peter's sermon. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. <clears throat> so, the Holy Spirit outpouring has occurred and has gained the attention of all the people who are present there at the temple at this time. Remember, the divided tongue of fire sitting on the head of each disciple. They could see it. Each disciple suddenly given the ability to speak in another language. This drew their attention. All the visiting Jews from all around the world are amazed that they can hear these Galileans, these hillbillies, really. That's what it was like. They can hear these Galileans speaking in their own native tongue, but not just in their own native tongue, in their own dialects. <clears throat> Verse 12 and 13 put it this way. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said they are full of new wine. <clears throat> so Peter stands up to address their perplexity and their question. So let's look at this. Peter standing up with the eleven. <clears throat> Don't you love Peter? Let's pause for a minute and, and look at how far Peter has come in 53 days. I'm going to read to you what happened 53 days earlier from Luke chapter 22. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him, but he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he's a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. 
But it wasn't just Peter, Mark 14, 50. Then they all forsook him and fled. So 53 days later, 53 days earlier, Peter's not the leader of following Jesus, if you will. He's in many ways the leader of those who ran away. And they all ran away. They all forsook him and fled. So this terrified, scattered band, not wanting to have anything to do with Jesus Christ, is now, 53 days later, fearless. They're brought back together. And why is this? Because they've come to understand and believe something very simple and very powerful. They've come to know and believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And that it was necessary for him to suffer and to die and to be raised up from the dead. They came to understand who their Messiah is. It changed everything for them. So what is Peter doing here? Well, he's not refusing to identify with Christ anymore. He is openly identifying with Jesus Christ in the midst of these same crowds that were responsible for Christ's crucifixion 53 days earlier. 52. Don't quote me on those numbers. And so here he is, standing up. He has boldness now. What does he do? He's standing, he's with the eleven. And he raised his voice and said to them, and then later he says, let this be known to you and heed my words. Here's a man who's now confident in who he is, in what he believes, and what he is to do. And he does it. And the boldness that God puts upon Peter, causes him to speak up loudly enough to gain the attention of the crowd, and then he speaks to them as one with authority. Let this be known to you. Heed my words. Matthew Henry says Peter's sermon is recorded to be an evidence for him that he was thoroughly recovered from his fall and thoroughly restored to the divine favor. He that had sneakingly denied Christ now as courageously confesses him. Brothers and sisters, we're all guilty of this same kind of fear. Do you you understand that this story is given to us so that we can examine ourselves? It's easy to read the story and say, wow, look at Peter. But do you read yourself into the story? Do you let the Lord God come to you and to your heart and your mind and your soul and show you your fears and the ways that you run away from Jesus as well? The ways that you do not want to be identified with Jesus. The ways that you do not trust Him to take care of you. The way that your fears cause you to do the same kind of nonsense that Peter did. To the extent that we don't trust Christ We will have these fears. And these are not little things. These are fears that will cause us to deny our Lord and to act like we're not even Christians, just like Peter did. So I'll ask you to consider that and remember that as as we move forward and not just breeze past it, but to really, through exposure to this sermon, go to the Lord, ask Him, Lord, how am I like Peter? How do I have fears? How do I have fears that control me? How do I have fears that I don't see? 
How do I overestimate myself like Peter did? Oh no, not me, Lord, someone else. We're all like this. Every one of us. We think that we're stronger than we are. We don't see ourselves accurately, just like Peter. So may God bless us to grow up like Peter did. What does he say next? He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. So now we are told to whom Peter is speaking. He tells us exactly who this sermon goes out to. He addresses both, both those Jews who live in Judea, but with a focus upon those who actually live in Jerusalem. And that makes sense because what we're going to see as we go on, the judgment that is coming is on all of Israel and Judea, but particularly upon Jerusalem and upon the temple. Now, it's worth noting here as we move through this, that in some fashion the gift of tongues was still underway either during or after Peter's sermon if those Jews who didn't understand Peter's language were to understand his sermon. Matthew Henry puts it this way. Peter addresses his discourse to the men of Judea and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. But we have reason enough to think that the other disciples continued to speak to those who understood them and therefore flocked about them in the languages of their respective countries. What did they speak to them? The wonderful works of God. It was not by Peter's preaching only, but that of all or most of the rest of the 120 that 3,000 souls were that day converted and added to the church. So it's likely that the gift of tongues was still operating and there was uh, tongues, the, the, excuse me, the 120 that were there, perhaps they heard some of what Peter was preaching and then they were able to share it with those who couldn't understand Peter. Primary audience, Judea, Jerusalem those who speak Hebrew, that could communicate with one another. Secondary audience, they also likely received the message via the gift of tongues. So Peter goes on and he refutes their statement. These are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day. So he refutes the idea of them being drunk babblers. So he's referencing those who've been given the miracle of tongues and he goes on to deny the false speculation that they're only drunk babblers. And as you've heard me say before, this may be a little humor from Peter. Because, you know, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Of course we're not drunk. Um, Bach says this. Peter explains that the idea that the disciples are drunk is not realistic. And I'll just pause there and say they know the commandments of God. They know that drunkenness is a sin. Going on. The juxtaposition of wine and the spirit is not unusual as it appears in Luke 1.15 and Ephesians 5.18. And the point of the similarity is the control, the control that wine or the Holy Spirit can exercise. It's only the third hour, which means nine in the morning since the day starts with sunrise. So Peter argues that there must be another explanation for what is taking place. This would be the hour of morning prayer with the first meal of the day to follow. So practically, it doesn't make any sense that they would be drinking and they wouldn't be drunk. And it just doesn't make sense. That's not what's happening. So what is happening? Now that he has their attention, he's answered their question. He's identified with Christ. He's with the eleven. 
and they're all there, and Peter has their attention. He says first, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter now goes on to tell these people that are present on this great day, he tells them what is happening. And as I mentioned already, this section of Joel 2 has two broad prophecies in it. One regarding the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh, and the other is that God will show wonders and signs in the last days leading up to the great and awesome day of the Lord. Here's what Joel 2 says, 28 through 32. Now, as I read it, look closely and see if you see any differences between what's here and what's in Acts chapter 2. This is from Joel. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I'll tell you later you're going to see there's actually some more from Joel 2, verse 32, that I didn't bring in here. And we'll look at that later. So quickly a little bit about the book of Joel. It's likely a post-exilic work, so after the people have been brought back to Israel, uh, after the Babylonian captivity. And the major theme, the thing that stands out through the book of Joel, is the horrible destruction of Israel by armies of locusts. Joel is set within the horrendous destruction of Israel through locust plague. And yet... In that context, the Lord tells them that he will destroy their enemies and he will destroy, excuse me, he will restore their peace. He will destroy their enemies and restore their peace. The last verses of Joel go like this. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine. And the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation. And Edom a desolate wilderness. For the violence done to the people of Judah. Because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever. And Jerusalem to all generations. But I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So here in this prophecy from Joel, God in his infinite wisdom chose to place this prophecy regarding the beginning of what many call the church age, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God, which began in this scene that we're looking at in Acts chapter 2. So he goes... And here's what he says in verse 17, quoting from Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days. So this phrase, the last days, Peter makes it clear to them that this Pentecost, which is likely A.D. 30, is occurring during what he calls the last days. 
says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. The events unfolding right before their eyes are last day's events foretold by Joel. So clearly they are in the last days. Now, in Joel 2, you may have noticed the text reads, it shall come to pass after, afterward. Peter, via the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, teaches more specifically that this idea of afterward that Joel uses is referencing the last days, which Peter clarifies in his sermon in Acts 2. In verse 17 of Acts 2, it's the first place in the New Testament where the phrase last days is used. There are four other places in the New Testament. We're going to look at each one of them this morning. I hope you'll be able to see by the end of that that each one of them is referencing that time frame, the time frame that they were living in at that moment. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 15. I want us to note how Paul warns Timothy directly and personally not to be drawn into the activities and the wickedness of bad men during perilous times, perilous times that occur in the last days. Timothy is facing the last days. 2 Timothy was likely written around AD 60 to AD 65. So listen carefully and focus on how he warns Timothy not to get caught up in these last days events. Why would he warn Timothy if Timothy wasn't going to be faced with those temptations? But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. So what's going to come during the last days? Perilous times. And this is a description of what's occurring during those perilous times. And from such people, turn away. So he's telling Timothy, this is something you have to turn away from. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So he's telling Timothy, you're going to go through these perilous times. How are you going to respond? But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, we're in the last days. Perilous times are coming. 
terrible things, terrible people are coming. How are you going to respond? Are you going to stay in the word and persist through this? So, there's one example of the last days and that they were in the first century in addition to what we've already seen in Acts chapter 2. How about Hebrews chapter 1? I want you to note how the author of Hebrews states that Jesus Christ spoke on earth in these last days. And Hebrews was likely written around A.D. 66. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. It's very obvious, isn't it? Now, are you asking yourself, the last days of what? Has that come to mind? It should. The phrase itself makes any curious person think, well, the last days of what? We'll get there. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. James corrects the foolish rich who at that time have heaped up treasure in the last days. So here we are again, another kind of correction, another kind of warning in the last days. And James was written, one of the first books of the New Testament written, probably around A.D. 45. So again, I give these time frames so you can see the time span of the last days that, that are in play here. And we know in A.D. 30, Peter's saying right now is the last days. And we know in Hebrew is around A.D. 66. So even right there, you can see that, that time frame of the last days. What does James say? He says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. So again, it's an obvious time frame. It's not some time way off in our future. That's what the dispensational way of reading scripture will try to tell us is that the last days is some time in the future uh, or that maybe we're in the last days now and that when it was written back then, it's way, way in the future. So the idea is, from the dispensational perspective, is that we're living in the last days. Okay? From Scripture, the last days phrase in the New Testament is not referencing our time frame now. It was referencing a time frame then. So Peter speaks about this again. In Second Peter, chapter Second Peter, when he writes it, and that was written around A.D. 66, and so Peter is still using this phrase, "last days," 36 years later, approximately. He specifically warns his readers not to give way to the scoffers who say that the promise of the coming of the Lord is false. So it's the same kind of theme. There are warnings given in the New Testament, and the emphasis can be applied through telling them what time frame they're in. So this is a warning to them at that time, to the people then. Why? Why was the warning given to the people then? Because the coming of the Lord is approaching them, and he doesn't want them to be led away from escaping God's wrath on Israel. There's a way to escape the coming wrath of the Roman legions upon Israel. and He doesn't want them to miss that. He says this, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, 
that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first. So who's he talking to? His contemporaries. That scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. See, Jesus told them he was coming back in that generation. And they were scoffing 36 years later. He's not coming. What are you talking about? And he says, don't listen to them. So the, and, and again, this is the last days. So the events of Pentecost, A.D. 30, occurred during the last days. So what last days are in view? Well, it's the last days of the Old Covenant dispensation. Christ has come. Everything about the Old Covenant dispensation pointed to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and enthronement, and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now that He is here with the New Covenant dispensation, the New Covenant administration, the new covenant working out of the eternal principles of God, the old covenant dispensation is fading away. That's how the writer, it's fading away at that time. So at that time, it's fading away. Hebrews 8.13, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Remember, Hebrews written around AD 66. So the old covenant dispensation was still in effect. You could still go to the temple. And the law of God in that dispensation, the requirements of the law of God in that dispensation, the specific temple sacrifice laws were still in place. But it had been made obsolete. And it was fading away. And it would soon vanish. And that vanishing away was not because the Jews all believed and said, this is pointless. It's because they continued to be apostate haters of God lying about Jesus Christ and the Lord God sent the Roman legions to destroy them and did not leave one stone upon another, which is the entry into the discussion of the end times, last days end times that Jesus gives in the New Testament. In each case, it's about the temple and the temple being destroyed, and not one stone being left on another. Okay, so what are these major points that are made from Joel? God pours out his spirit on all flesh. That's the major heading for point one. God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. And here's the text. <clears throat> Says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now here's the details. Here's what it looks like. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. So the fruit of this is God, when he puts his spirit on all flesh, then all flesh, young, old, men, women, boys, girls, every station of life, the word of God comes out of their mouths over the whole world. Peter makes it clear that what they are observing is the beginning of God pouring out his spirit on all flesh. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. They're seeing it happen. 
This is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God from heaven. Just as Joel had prophesied. Had not ever happened before. This was the beginning of something brand new. Now, it's important to stop for a minute because we're looking at this text and talk about the idea of the Spirit being poured out. Okay? And it's reasonable to say a word about the mode of baptism here during this sermon. If we are to baptize with water the way that God baptizes us with His Holy Spirit, then how should we do it? We should pour out water from above the person. If we're going to mimic the way that God baptizes, then that's what we will do. We will pour out water from above. God is the one who is active in this outpouring. We, his people, are the passive recipients of God's outpouring of his spirit. This is true of our salvation and it's it's signaled there in the way that baptism is applied. Our salvation is monergistic, not synergistic. You ever heard those terms before? Monergistic meaning all of God. God brings salvation and applies it to his people, and we have nothing to do with it. It's all of him. Whereas synergistic would mean that there's some part of it that belongs to me, something that I have to do, some part of me. So thus, our mode of baptism should be the same as God's mode of baptism. And if it is a sign, which it is, then it should point to that which it is meant to point to accurately. Okay? So we don't believe that other modes of baptism are invalid. We would just say they're irregular. And we would say that the signs do not tell the truth. The person is the one who is dunked under the water. The person is placed under the water. The water is just sitting there. That's not what happens when the Holy Spirit is poured out. We are receiving from above because we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we used to live. A dead man can't dunk himself under water. And so this is a really, and we'll see it throughout, it's mentioned in other verses that God pours out his spirit from above. Um, it's an important point, and it's worth noting along the way um, the signs that God gives to us uh, point to, are meant to point to how God works and the way salvation works. Okay, next. On all flesh, Joel's prophecy focuses upon how God no longer will limit his work to only the people of Israel or to only one type of person. And this is emphasized by Peter at this point. You know, Peter doesn't say anything about the tongues, okay? But he does talk about all flesh, which is associated with the tongues. Because that's how, remember, the gospel message is going to go to the whole world so quickly during the first century. That's the connection. The work of God will be upon all people, both men and women, boys and girls, young and old, all classes, all people of all types over the entire world and language will not get in the way. 
And what the result will be is that they will all speak forth the word of God. Galatians 3, 26 through 29 puts it this way. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So this is Holy Spirit baptism. For as many as you, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you all are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so the unity that is brought to the people of God through being in Christ demonstrates itself in the worship of God and in the proclamation of the gospel. There's not a place for men and a place for women in worship anymore. There's not a separation. There's the people of God coming together. Stations of life don't matter. Jew, Greek doesn't matter. Slave, free doesn't matter. We all come together and you know what we are when we are here? We are one family. And that shows up in the way we go forth and take the word of God with us everywhere we go. So oneness in Christ is demonstrated by God pouring out his Holy Spirit upon all of his people without distinction over the whole world. Okay. There's a lot more to that, but that's the big picture understanding of point one from Joel chapter two. Now point two. God shows heavenly wonders and earthly signs. That's the second main point that Peter brings up here by quoting Joel chapter 2. Now that's not happening right before them, right before their eyes at that very moment, except for tongues. The rest of the things that are mentioned when he quotes Joel chapter 2 are other kinds of signs. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. So by also quoting, you know, because Peter could have stopped, right? He didn't didn't have to quote this section. By also quoting this section of Joel 2, Peter points to the process of warning, warning process that God takes his people through before he pours out redemptive judgment upon them. It's what he did in the old covenant. It's what he did in the first century leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Brothers and sisters, I'm not going to go through all this again. We have studied this at length during eight sermons, uh, January to March of 2021. I'll remind you of the titles. First century destruction of Herod's temple. The first century wars of Palestine. The first century earthly disasters and heavenly signs of Palestine, which is the most closely linked to what we're seeing in Joel chapter 2. And in that sermon, we looked at first century earthquakes, famines, pestilences, and also the fearful sights and great signs from heaven as described by multiple first century historians. So these things took place. The other sermons were the first century persecution and great tribulation of the church, first century redemptive judgment against apostate Israel, first century hope in the midst of widespread panic, first century fig tree generation, Take heed, watch, and pray always. So, point number two from Joel's sermon. God shows heavenly wonders and earthly signs, and this is during the last days, 
before leading up to the great and awesome day of the Lord, warning them to turn away, to have nothing to do with this perverse and evil generation, which is right at the end of Peter's sermon. Right? So, next. The great and awesome day of the Lord is mentioned in verse 20b. I believe this is around, it's either AD 70 or right around AD 70 with the final destruction of the temple. Uh, now, the nation of Israel itself wasn't completely taken out of Palestine until the end of the Bar Kokhba rebellion uh, some, I think, uh, 50 years later, uh, 40 or 50 years later. <clears throat> Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So let's talk about this idea of the day of the Lord. It's another phrase that's misunderstood. Most often in today's culture, you're going to hear it referred to as the coming future, some future day in association with either the rapture or the return of the Lord, depending on what your dispensational view is. But that's not necessarily true. That may be the future coming of the Lord may be, will be, will be a day of the Lord like this, but the greatest one ever. But there's been multiple days of the Lord throughout history. So it's used numerous times throughout the Old Testament. I'm not going to go into all of them, or really any of them. And it references an early visitation of God in redemptive, an earthly visitation of God in redemptive judgment. It does not necessarily point to the last day of history. So God has visited the earth in judgment in times past. So in context, the great and awesome day of the Lord here mentioned by Peter occurring at the end of the last days that we've already looked at must be the closing of the old covenant dispensation that occurred when Christ visited his judgment upon apostate Israel being the crushing, comprehensive cruelty of the Roman legions finalized when the temple was destroyed and not one stone left upon another. And in Joel, there are uh, multiple times where this phrase is used. Uh, it's right here. Uh, four times in the book of Joel, the day of the Lord is used. And none of those times does it point to the last day of human history. So that establishes for us biblically that this phrase is used to reference visitations of God to the earth in, ju in redemptive judgment. Not just some reference to the future, to the last day. So the Lord always gives hope to his people. This uh, section of Peter's sermon ends with, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it goes along with the, the idea that uh, the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. It doesn't matter who you are, or what you've done, or where you're from, what language you speak, or if you're the most apostate of all the apostate Jews. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. There's a way of escaping from the coming great and awesome day of the Lord. So the immediate context, it's not the only meaning, but the immediate context is escape from the destruction of the Roman legions coming upon Israel. Getting away from that. There's a way to escape that. Peter wants his fellow Jews to know that they do not need to go through the wrath of God that will be released upon apostate Israel. He's already told them, whom you crucified. You crucified him. Lawless men. 
That's you. And he's coming. But he wants him to know there's a way out. You can be forgiven. He wants them to understand the process of the last day leading up to the days of vengeance upon apostate Israel. He wants them to begin to think through what's coming in their generation and to be free of that perverse generation that would be destroyed and to be a part of the remnant. Peter points their minds to the Lord. Not what they've done, not that they crucified him, but that he's alive. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He wants them to think of them, preparing them to hear the message of salvation in Christ that comes right on the heels of this section. He's telling them, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, tell me how. Okay, it's coming next. He teaches them who the Lord is. He teaches them what the Lord has done, where He is, how He relates to the Father, what He is doing, and He shows them that they are the ones who killed the Lord of glory, who will save them if they call on Him. They can be saved by Him, the one they killed, if they call upon Him for mercy. Let's look at Joel 2.32, just to kind of bring this to a close, this idea. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You've heard that part already. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So this goes along with the immediate context. Where's the deliverance? Mount Zion. Jerusalem. Who's it for? The remnant. Those who are not a part of that perverse generation. And the beauty of this, of course, is all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But why are they calling on the Lord? Because they are amongst the remnant whom the Lord has called. So this portion of Joel 2.32 further emphasizes the salvation in view in Peter's sermon. It's first of all, getting free from the destruction of the Roman legions. It's not limited to that. Because he's not just the king of Israel. He's the heavenly king. Alive forever on Mount Zion. And his plan is a global plan. And his plan is to deliver from sin into life eternal. And to bring the fruits of peace to the earth. Because he is the risen reigning prince of peace. He wants his countrymen to be served. And like they were told by Jesus, they would be his witnesses beginning in Jerusalem to Judea and to all the ends of the earth. And that's what's happening here in this sermon. Peter's sermon. Uh, Have you ever asked yourself what it would be like to be there? Have you ever thought about, as I'm bringing the sermon to a close, have you ever thought about that maybe the Lord might let us see parts of history when we get to heaven and get to watch these things? And what a wonderful day this was. And perhaps the Lord might even let us see Not just what was happening on earth, but maybe he'll peel back the veil and we'll get to see everything that was happening in the heavenly realms and on earth on this great day as the Lord Jesus Christ begins the outpouring of his Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son pouring out the Spirit upon his people in this new day that the second Adam has been brought to reign and all that was lost in the first Adam and more is restored to God's people. And we 
should be those who rejoice uh, to be a part of this, to be a part of what God is doing. So I hope that you will ask yourself some questions as you think through today's sermon. First, I've already brought up about Peter. It's so easy for us to just move right past it and not take the time to ask the Lord to show us our own lack of faith, our own lack of trust towards God, and how that creates fear in us. And that fear causes us to do and say things like Peter that ultimately end up denying Christ and denying His way and denying His word and denying His glory, denying His death and His resurrection through the ways that we live. Instead of, like Peter was later, identifying with Christ and speaking his word. I hope that this sermon will also be a way that, next question, that a, a right view of God's kingdom is solidified in your mind, of eschatology is solidified in your mind, understanding the old covenant passed away, that dispensation came to an end, and the new covenant dispensation began and is the eternal working out of Christ as our king and Christ as the owner and possessor of the earth and Christ as the, the ruler of the kings of the earth and all the people of the world being blessed in him. And seeing how it, all these things happened then and are in our past and we don't have to be taking these ideas that are present and somehow speculating them into our future. And you'll bump into these ideas. And I want you to be ready when you're out there and you're engaging with other Christians uh, and other ideas in the world. These ideas are in our past. Matthew 24, in our past. Luke 21, in our past. Wherever it is in Mark, in our past. Okay? Revelation that describes this. In our past. And I, and I just hope that you're careful as you're having your conversations in the world to spot these ideas when they come up and not allow these fretful ways of thinking, especially when it's at its worst about always oh, Jesus is coming back any day, things are so terrible. And just, just reject those, those uh, pessimistic ideas that will be brought to you. And instead, remember those things are in our past. Christ reigns. And as David said, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thine footstool. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we desire to be meek uh, like Peter became, like the eleven became. Uh, we ask you to humble us, Lord, like you did Peter and the eleven and the disciples. And we ask, Lord, that we would uh, continue to be the recipients of the outpouring of your un unquenched and ungrieved Holy Spirit upon us. And that we would be walking as those who are receiving the power of God in us and through us. And that we would love and serve and do your will to bring forth the manifestation of your kingdom in our lives and families in our church and in this world. And to be participants in the destruction of of the forces of the devil and darkness in this earth, Father. In Jesus' name.